Hi, and welcome to the Vine Community Church Podcast. We hope that what you're about to hear will help you to flourish in God's grace and bear fruit through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. Hey, my name is Garrison. I'm one of the elders and pastoral interns here at the Vine. And one of my favorite things from my childhood was Dr. Seuss. I actually, I think I own almost all of the Dr. Seuss books. And now I'm getting to experience the joy of not reading them as a child, uh, but reading them to my children. And what I've learned about Dr. Seuss is that it's not just a children's book, but should be recommended for all adults to read. Uh, There is just such great joy, uh, laughter, you know, whimsy, um, and wisdom. There's so much wisdom in Dr. Seuss. And so I'm I'm now getting to experience it from this other side. Um, And one of my favorites right now is Oh, the Places You'll Go. If you've read that one, it's just an absolute classic. And I couldn't help but think about this quote from the book as I thought about today's sermon. And he says, and when you're in a slump, because sometimes you'll find yourself there, and when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. We've all been there. In that slump or in that funk, your marriage is just not going the way you want it to. You can't seem to get it together at work. You can't seem to get it together mentally. Maybe you're unemployed. We've all experienced these slumps. And you're not in that slump because you want to be there. You're not in that slump for a lack of trying to unslump yourself. You're stuck. You feel stuck despite your tireless efforts. You feel stuck despite all your trying. Just stuck. The context of today's passage in Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 14, is going to be really important. But to say that Israel was in a slump would be a far understatement of their true state. As they have found themselves, because of their rebellion towards God, because of their giving their hearts over to idols, giving their lives over to sin, they've now found themselves in exile in Babylon. It's not just a slump, but man, they're stuck. Babylon has gripped them tightly, and they're not sure what to do. Just like you might be trying to unslump yourself sometimes. And it may be no comparison to the exile, right? Just a regular old slump. But some of us coming in here today are carrying a burden of sin. A a burden of sin that you just seem you can't shake. A pattern of sin that has represented itself in your life after years of being delivered from it. An addiction that has returned. Anger that has returned. Anxiety that has returned. Because of sins, you seem you cannot shake despite all of your best efforts. You kind of just feel stuck coming into here today. But man, I want to offer us hope. I want to offer us what it is that Isaiah is about to do here in verses 7 through 14 and continuing on into 64, actually, this long prayer of repentance and confession of sin because Israel has realized this. They are in exile to no fault of God's own, 
but their own. It is not the strength of their enemy that has conquered them. It is their own idolatry and their sin that has them sitting in exile, needing some unslumping. So we're going to learn from Isaiah how it is that we are to cry out when that sin just seems that it has clung so closely to us, despite having followed the Lord for 10, 20, 30, 50 years, why can't I shake this, Lord? Why does this seem to still have a hold on my life? We're going to learn to cry out with Isaiah, Lord, we have no other. Do it again. Do it again, Lord. If you would not mind, uh, if you're able, please stand with me as we read from Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 14. And this is the precious word of God. Verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old. Of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And what a glorious name it is. What a glorious word it is. This is the name. This is the word that will stand forever. As the scripture says, grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. You looking for something to find hope in, comfort in, rest in, peace, something to trust in today that will not fail you. It is here. It is the very words of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, thank you for bringing us again under your word as we need this reminder daily. Not just weekly, we need it daily, Lord, for our unslumping. We need to know what is true in the midst of a life of falsehood. Father, show us. Show us in your word. Instruct us today how it is that we can look to you and unslump ourselves. Amen. I'll be seated. Thank you. So in looking how it is that you cry out in this slump and that that feeling of being stuck, we're going to use Isaiah's prayer as a model. My prayer is hopefully it teaches us, it instructs us how it is that we can cry out to the Lord and depend on him when sin seems to just crowd our life. And really briefly before I move on, maybe you came in here and you didn't resonate with me saying that sin is a weight on you right now. But I want to ask you this. What's the temperature of your home? 
What are the hallmarks in your home right now? Is it marked by your ill temper, your short temper? Is it marked by anxiety? Spouts of anger? Worry? Restlessness? Discontent? Then you may not think you've come in here today with sin burdening you, but those are the markers that you've given your heart over to something else this day. So cry out with Isaiah as we unpack this. So where do we begin in prayer? Isaiah begins praying with the one we're praying to. Just as Jesus taught us to pray, he said, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We start with the God who we are praying to. And Isaiah opens here, I will recount in verse 7, the steadfast love of the Lord. See, Isaiah is calling to remembrance the goodness of the Lord, and he's confessing it. He's not only confessing it to himself as the reason why he's praying to God, but he's confessing it to God as well, saying, God, this is why I'm coming to you. This is why my plea comes to you. I know who you are, who you have been, and I'm asking you to be it again. So what is he specifically calling to remembrance? And we're going to be going back to this a lot. Okay, as you pick up on this, uh, when you read this passage, you're going to see that there's a lot of allusion to the Exodus. Isaiah is remembering the history of Israel up into the Exodus and God's rescue of his people from captivity in Egypt. So we're going to keep going back to Exodus and see how it is that Isaiah is calling to remembrance the goodness of God. Okay, he's looking back because he's now also looking now and he's seeing my circumstances are stuck in exile, isn't matching what I know you have done for your people before. So it's his great goodness, his compassion, his steadfast love. It's all evident in this, as it says in verse 8, that he called a people to himself and said, I will be their savior. So that when they were afflicted as his people were in Egypt being held as slaves and dealt with harshly, God did not stand idly by. But because he had promised to be their savior, he responded to rescue his people. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is where we see just the great compassion of the Lord and his nearness to you in your affliction from Exodus 2. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Number one, and God heard their groaning. And God, number two, remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Number three, God saw. God sees you in your affliction and where you're stuck. He saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He knows his people intimately. You have not been forgotten, you Israel, who are in exile in Babylon. You have not been forgotten sitting in your seat today with that burden of sin. He hears your cries. He remembers his promise to you. He sees you. He knows you. What a great promise. That God remembers his covenant and his promise to be their savior. That's why in verse 9 it says this, that their affliction becomes his affliction. Or another way we can interpret this passage or this verse is actually that it's in all their affliction, God did not afflict. 
as in God was not an enemy to them, but instead he fought against their enemy for them as their savior. And this is where Isaiah says the angel of the Lord or the angel of his presence saved them as he refers back again to Exodus when God kept Pharaoh and his army at bay so that God's people could be set free. And how did he do that? We all may remember the pillars of fire and the pillars of cloud that stood between Israel and Egypt so that they could get away free. But question, do you know what it actually says in Exodus stood between them? Exodus 14. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the hosts of Egypt and the host of Israel. Do you all want to geek out with me for a moment? Yeah? I want to talk about Christophanies. Can you say Christophanies? Well done, class. Well done. Um, I see that you're super excited about this, as I am. If Joe Outlaw's here, I know he's super excited about talking about this. Um, what is a Christophany? It's different from a theophany. A theophany is, is the, the sighting of you know, an appearance of God right in the Old Testament. So what would be a Christophany? It's this. It's a potential sighting of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. A simple way to say that, it's seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. But it's not just a foreshadow of Jesus. It's not just a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled about Jesus, looking to Jesus, like, oh, wow, we can read this passage and see, oh, man, I see Jesus in this. No, I'm talking about a physical person that is encountered in the Old Testament that is very likely the pre-incarnate Jesus himself. That's a Christophany, and I think it's super cool, and I see your excitement too. Um, so indulge with me for a moment. I want us to compare Exodus 14 to Exodus 13, 21, where it says, and the Lord, it was the Lord that went before them by day in a pillar. Chapter 13 says it was the Lord who went before Israel. Chapter 14 says it was the angel of God that went before them. And according to Isaiah back in verse 9, it's the angel of his presence that saved them. A more literal translation of that verse is the angel or messenger of his face. A messenger that bore the face of God himself that saved them. See, the Old Testament is littered with references of what's called the angel of the Lord, who is often positioned to be synonymous with the Lord himself. And he's actually often seen physically interacting with people as the meal he shared with Abraham in Genesis 18. Or when he physically wrestled Jacob to the ground. Even Isaiah's conception of Yahweh is of a physical Lord. As you look back in his prophecy in Isaiah 6, what does he see? He sees the Lord physically seated on a physical throne. And we read last week, he who comes from Edom is a physical blood-stained warrior. Emmanuel which means God with us. God with us in the flesh is not an awesome Christmas New Testament concept when Jesus is born and he's Emmanuel, God with us. No, no, it is a concept of all of the Old Testament as well. And it's important for us to see this because as Tim mentioned last week, it is very faulty. It is very faulty to think that we can separate the Old Testament from the New Testament despite people's trying in this day. And why is that? Because from beginning to end, we see the triune God at work. 
As the Father plans salvation for his people, as the Son accomplishes salvation for his people, and the Holy Spirit applies salvation to the inward being of his people. Jesus can be seen in the Old Testament. Isn't that so cool? That was all a really, really fun way for me to say this. That God is not a distant God. He's near. He's actually very near. To his people and in their infliction. To the point when, yes, we see his coming at the birth of Jesus, but we see the lengths God went (laughs) that the pre-incarnate Jesus would show to the people of the Old Testament to lead them and guide them and protect them. God was never up in the clouds in the heavens far away from his people, but he is near to you this very day. Never distant from you and your struggles. And this is what Isaiah is calling to remembrance. It says, he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. That doesn't sound like a God who's just hanging out in heaven. That sounds like a God that's in it with them lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Man, what a good and mighty Savior we have. And aren't those words awesome? That he lifted you up? He carried you? Where are you today when you hear those words? Are you in a place where those words actually bring you a sigh of relief and comfort? Or are those words now creating frustration and confusion in you? Because you're asking, where's my lifting? Where's my carrying? This sin's weighing me down. I don't don't feel much lifting right now. Are you experiencing a disconnect with these words because of the current season you're in? And if you are, I think you should be. Isaiah is. That's the position that he's praying from here. We turn to verse 10. He says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Back to verse 9 where it says that God would not afflict. God would not be their enemy. He'd be on their side. Now we have here in their affliction, God won't be their enemy. But in their rebellion to him, he has now become an enemy. Again, back to Exodus because that's where Isaiah is drawing his recollection from. Chapter 23, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Sounds like the good shepherd, doesn't it? Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. The angel, the God who will guard you, who bears the name of Yahweh. Hey, Jesus. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. His promise is this. You obey his voice, your enemies will be my enemy. You disobey my voice, and I will be an enemy to you. God had this warning for his people, which we learn through the Exodus story that they ignore very quickly and run to various idols. I don't know about you guys, but when I read the Exodus narrative, it's very easy for me to look down on the Israelites. 
Because let me paint the picture for you for what they just experienced. Harsh slavery for hundreds of years in Egypt. So they finally cry out. They didn't actually know who they're crying out to, but someone responding. God responds on their behalf. And he makes all these crazy plagues come down, right? And they see everyone in Egypt being plagued except for them. So something's going on. And then finally, they're, they're on their way out. Pharaoh's finally let the people go. They're butt up against the sea. Pharaoh's army coming on this side. They think, wait, great, we've been brought out here to die. What's our option? Then all of a sudden, God takes that giant sea and splits it apart. And I want you, when you think about this story, you need to remember something. We're talking millions of people here. This wasn't crossing a stream. This was walking miles with millions of people, probably very slowly, through walls of sea on both sides. Can you imagine the trust and faith you'd have to have wall to wall side? Why is that not crashing down on me, right? As they walk through, they make it safely to the other side. They turn back and what happens? Pharaoh's army is coming hot and God crashes it down and drowns their enemy that has been persecuting them for hundreds of years. I don't know about you, but my faith would be solid as a rock right about now if I just saw that. It takes all of five minutes for Moses to go up the mountain and start talking with God. And, and they don't have their leader anymore. And Israel's like, ah, oh, we need something to worship. Golden calf. That's a good idea. Turned out very poorly for them. It's easy to make fun of them. And it's easy to laugh at that. And see the silliness. But the, the truth is I, we, we all play these same silly games. Our hearts are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, the great hymn says. And we so easily wander to other things, and we constantly give our hearts over to something, committing the same rebellion that Israel has, and making ourselves an enemy of God. But this side of Christ, thanks be to God, we know that in our enmity towards God, our sins are not treated as we deserve because of the work of Jesus on the cross. But from Israel's perspective, how does this now, being an enemy of God, ship turn around? They see this, and how do, how do they turn this around? Well, we'll go to verse 11. And it says this, that he remembered. It's always about God's remembering. And remembering what? His covenant. It has never been the story that God's people are faithful to him, but God is faithful to his people. That's the covenant he has made. That when you sin time and time and time again, he's not waiting for you to be faithful. He's going to show you how faithful he has been to you. You would be overwhelmed by his mercy. You would be overwhelmed by his grace. And what would well up inside of you is a gratitude of worship, of throwing down the thing that makes your bones rot inside and enjoy the relationship with the God and creator of the universe where your rest and your peace and your comfort is found. That's the story of God remembering. So we said that he remembers his covenant. He's faithful to his covenant. Though they don't hold up their portion, God cannot defy himself. And he is good to the promise he has made. He holds up his portion, and that is to be their savior. See, when the Hebrews were in Egypt, they didn't do anything to make God their savior. He chose them as a people to save. 
And so it was his own glorious right arm, it says, that brought them salvation in order to make for himself an everlasting name. I want you to, next time you read through Exodus, I want you to do this. Uh, pick up this narrative. There's this going on between Pharaoh and God, and it is who will have God's people. Now, see, the Bible doesn't teach dualism of, like, good and evil, okay, because God wins. There, there's nothing that compares to him. But there's this battle of who will have God's people. And God puts his stake in the ground and says, these are my people, and you will let them go. Why? To make for himself a glorious name, that he is the God above all gods. Pharaoh, you are nothing. That right arm brought salvation. God in all of his own power in doing nothing about Israel themselves. It's that same glorious right arm that Isaiah mentions in chapter 59, that when God surveyed the land, it says that he saw no one good, no, not one. He looked out and scoured the earth, and he said, does anyone do good? Does anyone seek after me? The answer was no. And so he says, my own right arm will bring salvation as he reaches down to save the people he's covenanted himself with. So God will not forsake his covenant. His love is steadfast. His mercy is unending. And so Isaiah says in verse 14, you led your people out to make for yourself a glorious name. Your spirit gave them rest. He knows this to be true of God. He's so confident looking back at what God has done for his people that he would do it again. But are you feeling that sigh of relief yet? Isaiah, having confessed this to himself and confessed it to God, are Isaiah and Israel, are they feeling relieved yet? No. Because here's what they've done. Yes, they've looked back at what God has done, but now they're looking now and saying, what's going on? Lord, you did it in Egypt with the Exodus. Why are we still in exile? Why are we still suffering here? It's not matching up in his mind, and thus it's creating this reason to cry out. And Israel is starting to realize this, that they have made the huge mistake of inviting other gods into their worship, thinking it would be okay. Hey, we're in Babylon for a few years. Well, this God, this God, we'll hang out with this God. No, it turned very sour for them. They learned very quickly that those gods did not care for them in the way that the Lord God Almighty cares for them. And they're now at the end of themselves in this exile, crying out and saying, we have no other than Yahweh. It took us learning this, but we have no other than Yahweh, and we need him to do it again. We're stuck here. Babylon is not letting go. We need God to do it again, to put his stake in the ground again and say, these are my people. Sin will not have them. The enemy will not have them. These are my people. We need God to do it again, is what they're crying out. And so when they have this question of where is he that did this, where is he that did this, that's not a literal question looking for an answer of, oh, God's over here. No, that is their heart's crying out that we need to take action, that we, like Egypt, back in Egypt, we need to cry out to our God. We need to confess and repent of our sins. And we need to seek again the Lord Almighty 
who does not forsake his people, though we have forsaken him and have invited other gods into our worship. So he's made the jump from exodus to exile. And he's saying, we've got the same God. We need him to do that same work again, but we're not experiencing it. And from exile, we now need to make a jump to our own exile. Our own giving over our hearts to idols and sin and the mess that it's creating in our lives. So you today, are you waiting on a rescue? Are you waiting on deliverance? Are you in exile because you have sinned or that former addiction of yours has returned and now you're having to hide it because you go to church every Sunday? Has your love of money started rotting your family? Has anxiety, your anxiety gone rampant because of your coveting, your fear of missing out, wanting to keep up? Has your worry skyrocketed because you simply don't commit your ways to the Lord? And you're on your own. Or again, you're like, hey, I'm not feeling any of those things. Well, what's the temperature of your home? It's probably revealing that you have given yourself over to something. And that's a weight that you cannot unslump yourself from. Friends, if that's where you find yourself today, Babylon has its clutches on you. And it has no desire of letting you go. It has no desire of letting you go. I'm asking today that we would cry out. That we would cry out, Lord, we have no other. I need you to do it again. And the do it again, I'm asking, is it not that he saves us again, right? Because Israel was already saved. They had been brought out of Egypt. God had made them theirs. But where were, why were they in exile now? Their sin had brought them there. So, Lord, we need, we need you to renew us. We need you to re- restore the joy of your salvation to us. We need you to sanctify us in our hearts, in our worship of you and you alone. Lord, prone to wonder. Lord, make it stop. This sin, as the, as the psalm says, just, man, it rots inside of you. Your bones are wasting away. Lord, take this from me. Are you crying out? Are you repenting? Are you seeking after him? If you do, I guarantee he's going to reach down with that glorious right arm in his own strength and pull you out. And friend, unslump you from that weight that you are carried and burning today that you cannot get off yourself. Man, Colossians 3, just um, reading this with the kids this week and just, just love this. Is it, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Put to death, therefore. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Those idols that you're giving your heart over to. Put them to death. Friends, get busy doing this. Killing sin before it kills you. Get busy killing sin in your life before it kills you. My favorite all-time illustrations from Matt Chandler um, I heard years ago. I'm going to tell it first person because it's weird just to do it third person. Uh, watching Animal Planet. And I, I watched this lion tamer as being interviewed. And they're just, he's flabbergasted. He doesn't understand why his lion attacked. He's like, man, I've had Lucky, a terrible name for him. Um, I've had Lucky ever since he's been a cub. I've raised him, I've trained him. We tore all over America. Then it pans to his assistant. She has slash marks all across her face. She's like, I do that trick all the time where I put my head in his mouth. He never does anything. You have to sit there and say, what are you talking about? It's a lion. That's what lions do. By nature, they eat and they devour us. We do the same thing. We think we can tame sin. There is no taming sin, friends. It's not its nature. Its nature is to eat you. Thanks, Siri. (laughs) Its nature is to eat you, to destroy you. You will not tame sin in your life. So cry out today. Repent and seek this Jesus. This Jesus that is sung about in this amazing song. It says, Jesus strong and kind. Jesus, can't get Siri to go away. It says, Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus Jesus, strong and kind. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. Jesus said if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross that he will come to me. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus, strong and kind. Church, would we learn to cry out, Lord, we have no other. Do it again. And will we walk in the freeness that he has afforded us by his blood? Let's pray. Jesus, set us free from the sin that clings so closely that we may run with endurance the race that has been set before us looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. Turn our eyes from our sin and on to you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at thevinecc.com, download our mobile app, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram at thevinecc. Have a great week.